I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with the relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. Welcome to MI6. If Villanelle's alive, you need to find her. Stop it, Eve. I can feel your excitement. What is it with you and Villanelle? Sometimes when you love someone, you will do crazy things. Women love true crime, but they're also fed up with maneuvering the male-dominated workplace, being underestimated, and checking their emotions at the door. Enter Killing Eve, the right show for the right time. Featuring a fearless, high-fashion assassin and the shrewd MI6 agent pursuing her, the psychosexual spy drama made by and for women unapologetically oozes femininity from head to toe. The series has found its audience and is on a roll, by playing into the emotions of the cultural moment. We check in halfway through the second season. Later on, genre filmmaker Roxanne Benjamin makes her feature directing debut with Body at Brighton Rock. I talk with her about the glories and risks of filming in the great outdoors and keeping genre fans surprised. Let's listen in. We haven't talked about Killing Eve on The Real before, so to assess how it's found viewers and created its fervent fandom, I'm joined by my colleagues from the television team, I'm Yvonne Villarreal. And I'm Lorraine Ollie. Lorraine, can you talk a little bit about how you came to the show and what you like about it? When the show started, it was written about, some people were watching it, but throughout the first season, which still was only a year ago, the ratings were growing episode to episode, building up to the finale of the first season. It did really well throughout award season, and I feel like the second season feels much bigger. Yeah, I mean, I even came to the show late. In the beginning, I had heard about it, and people were talking about it. You know, I have 5,000 things to watch, and really the premise of it didn't sound that interesting to me. I agree. On paper, not that interesting. Of course, hearing everyone and Yvonne mercilessly making fun of me for not watching it. I Actually, I finally did. But I think the second season actually grabs you much quicker than the first season did. And I don't know if that's because you're already invested in it. But I think they've had a chance to develop these characters. And when you're coming in on the second season, it's like bang, right out of the gate. You know who they are. They're much deeper and more layered. And I think you get more out of each episode than you did even with the first season. But I think also the themes that we were so interested in the first season of these women leads, Asian woman in the lead, and a spy thriller where it wasn't the men and it wasn't the women as the side characters. That was all the big deal, right? With the first season, and rightly so, and it was done really well. The second season, we're past that now, and it's about them, and you are putting that idea of what TV should be or where we should get as an industry in a box, and you're just watching it as the show that it is, and it's so good. Yvonne, the first season was written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who also had the show Fleabag, which is going to be coming back soon in its second season. And then this season is being overseen by Emerald Fennell. Do you feel like that's had an impact on the show? It definitely has a bit of a different tone. And first, before we talk about that, Emerald is amazing. She's going to be Camilla in the next season of The Crown. 
And she's Nurse Patsy on Call the Midwife, which I don't think a lot of people realize. So let's give her those props. It's definitely a different feeling than what Phoebe had established, but it also carries things over in a way that's somewhat seamless. There are those moments that feel very much like they came from her, but Phoebe had established the tone of it, which she's tapping into, I think, as best as anyone can when they're taking over a show. And just speaking about those touches that are going back to that original idea or feeling of the series— Some of the moments in the second season when they're talking about this mysterious second assassin who could move through this world and nobody would notice them. A middle-aged woman who's potentially an immigrant, who's invisible in society, that's Mm -hmm. the woman. And I just thought it was just so brilliant to point that out, of using that cover of essentially being totally marginalized and invisible as being this, like, killer entity. Well, I think why people, particularly women, respond so well to it is... We're so used to being underestimated. When Eve, in the first season, she narrows in earlier than everyone else, this is a woman, and everyone's like, this can't be a woman. But it's like, no, a woman can get away with this. You just don't expect it from her because you have all these ideas of what a man can do versus a woman. So if we have this kind of female-centered cat-and-mouse espionage thriller with Sandra Oh's character of in this odd push-and-pull with this international assassin villanelle played by Jodie Comer, that there is this additional layer to it where they're actually attracted to each other. And the show doesn't shy away from that. If you were seeing this as a more typical male-centered show, there would be this undercurrent of like a homoerotic tension, but they would never really explore that. And is there something to it that for whatever reason, this show just kind of goes there? I think there's just a mutual fascination with each other. And sometimes that comes out as like having erotic undertones. They have this magnetic pull toward what's going on with that other person. I think you're right. If this was men, of course, there's no way they would do that. They would maybe make it a male crush. They would make Mm -hmm. it very, very... With women, it's a much safer zone to approach that. But I also think it speaks to the intimacy between women. Something I think that men don't share is we have common struggles. They're both (laughs) underestimated. They've both had trauma coming up, all of those things. And I think they see it in each other, but they had these opposite reactions or they had these opposite paths. Villanelle is not a woman defined by fear. She's not insecure. She doesn't feel guilt and she doesn't care what people think about her, which is the total opposite of Eve's character, where she struggles with a lot of that. So, of course, when you see someone that is able to exude what you hope to be like, I mean, there's a natural attraction there. Right. And I think because it's two women, television feels much more comfortable having that much more intimate connection, even if it's bordering on they're kind of in love with each other, kind of Mm -hmm. not. And I think it makes it a much more dynamic and layered story than if it was two men, because there's no way they would go there. But also something I really enjoyed in the fourth episode. So Eve's kind of handler, her boss, basically, played by Fiona Shaw, she gets chewed out at one point by her superior. And that character was a woman as well. And their scene is hilarious and includes some of the filthiest language I've (laughs) ever seen on television. And the idea that like the MI5, MI6, the British espionage, Mm -hmm. like bureaucracy is from what we see, run exclusively by women, just seems exciting and fantastic. And whether or not that's 
the show's own world or the actual world. It just feels really fresh. What's so great about that is MI5 and MI6 are things that happen underground, like you don't see it. Like, And so it's totally plausible that it could be this thing that happens out of the sight of the rest of society. So it's women who run it. They're, they're allowed to run it. But I think another thing that I really adore about the show is it's just fun. Like so often, so much of what we see is prestige television is kind of dour. It's very emotionally downbeat, and that's what makes it serious. And the way they're able to undercut it with the humor, I think, is so crucial to why people are drawn to it. And some of those moments when Eve is laying in bed and her boyfriend rocks in and he's like, well, we need to talk. She's like, oh, gross. <laughs> when Villanelle is kind of sneaking up on the woman who has a crush on Eve's husband and kind of putting a little bug in her ear to go after Eve's husband. Or you're going to be single the rest of your life. You have a cat, right? You can always get another one. It's Those moments are priceless. My favorite is one of the most recent episodes where Villanelle's outside and that young girl comes up to her. Can I take a picture of you from my Instagram? And she's like, bug off. Like, go get a life. It's like, so good. So <laughs> well, good. that brings up one, I think, really exciting eccentric aspect of the show, which is Villanelle's outfits. I think it's become something that's become a real fan favorite. And the show itself even had some fun with it in the first couple episodes of this second series where she at first was in the hospital, then she sort of had to sneak out and she was just getting back out into the world. And she was wearing kind of normal people's clothes and you could tell how uncomfortable she was. And she now is back to wearing these really fabulous outfits that are very over the top and really fun. And I think the last couple episodes have really been having a lot of fun with that. What is it about Villanelle's outfits that people get so excited about and it makes this seem so fun? Well, because they're amazing. And also, when you see a man in this assassin role, it's usually like they're trying to look ordinary, trying to blend in. And the way she's able to disarm people is to be this beautiful person with these amazing clothes. You're not expecting anything bad to come from that. You're seduced by it. You're lured in. And it's not in a way that the femme fatale type of fashion where it's like overly sexy. It's like, oh, this is beautiful kind of thing. Well, there's no way somebody trying to attract that much attention <laughs> right. would potentially be doing something that they don't exactly. want people to pay attention to. <laughs> yes. But I love those moments where she's trying to sneak out of the hospital and she has to find clothes and she's in the boys' pajamas that she just killed and she has to slip her feet into this nurse's pair of Crocs and the disgust on her face. Ew, I have to wear Crocs. And when she has to steal those clothes from the laundromat, like, ugh, I have to put this on. And like, come on, how every woman, like when you've you know been at your mom's house and you forgot <laughs> something, you have to put it on. You're just like, ugh, I don't want to wear this out the door. And just the idea, too, that there's these things that women really like. Women like to go shopping for nice shoes. Women like, I'm saying generally, but nice clothes, stuff like that attributed to this character who's a total kick-ass assassin. So those things go together quite comfortably rather than like, oh, there's a frivolous fashion girl. Here's the serious kick-ass girl. No, they're the same person. Well, it's the aspirational aspect. Like, I think all women, one, wish they could look glamorous out the door like that. And the other side of that aspirational aspect is wishing that we could be fearless like her, that we could not give a damn and be ruthless and brutal when we need to be, whether it's at work or at home or elsewhere in our personal life. It's just 
It's like she's our superhero in a weird way, even though she does terrible things. It's kind of like, I wish I could be like that in some way. Well, tell me more about that. The tension between how exciting Villanelle is as a character, what a fantastic performance Jodie Comer is giving, but then the fact that she's an assassin and she's obviously some sort of psychopath because she just feels no she feels nothing remorse exactly we're so used to the anti-heroes we're so used to walter white and tony soprano and feeling some sort of connection to them in a way or at least with walter white like you can understand the circumstances that he was in that led him down this bad path and what eventually happened to him but what's interesting about her is we see her vulnerable this season but we still don't know What led her to this life? And there's something intriguing about watching somebody like not have some sort of redeeming value yet. Like when she's in that hospital with the kid, he's just lost his family and he's got all these injuries and he's kind of like, I don't want to live like this. This is not a life I want to live. Would you want to live like this? And she thinks she has mercy because she's like, actually, no, I wouldn't. And so she just like kills him. And she thinks she's doing him a favor, but it's so ruthless. You never see on prime time kids getting killed. And women doing it. Yeah, and women doing it. Yeah, right. What is also so appealing about her character is that she doesn't feel, that she's so detached. And for many women, especially out in the workplace, the thing that can take you down is feeling too much, is Uh emotions. I mean, it just doesn't fit in in a lot of places. I mean, that's changing, but it makes it sort of a hurdle to get past when you're trying to maneuver in whatever industry it is that's been male-dominated. So to watch her just go in with no emotions, there's something very liberating about that. And I have to say it's kind of Circe-like in a way, too. Game Mm. of Thrones Circe-like. It's You can put those emotions in a box like the worst of worst men and do what you need to do to get that damn job done. And the interesting thing about both those characters is that Eve really doubts herself in the beginning. She's really hesitant and she's kind of moving towards more power. She's kind of moving towards not second guessing herself. And she's kind of moving more towards a center where she feels a little less, whereas Villanelle's going the other way. She's coming from this place of fearlessness, not caring, not feeling. And you're kind of seeing a little more feeling in her. And maybe there's glimmers of that. So I wonder if they're going to meet in the middle at some point. I think that's one thing that's so interesting about Sandra Oh's character is that in some ways she's like an audience surrogate and she's watching Villanelle. She's excited about Villanelle in the same way that an audience is. And she's having to grapple with, well, what does that mean? And it's interesting, even when you see it, the way it's impacting her work life, her bosses are trying to push her away from Villanelle. They obviously can all tell that she has this strange relationship with her. I love there was a moment when the coworker asked her with Villanelle, do you like watching her or do you like being watched. Mm. And Eve's answer was both. Both. There was something just thrilling in that moment. I want to be sure that we talk about the show a little bit, maybe in a more big picture way, because, you know, as I said, it started kind of small. It's been building episode to episode now that we're in the second season. And I did not realize that originally the show was being shown on BBC America. It's now being shown both on BBC America and AMC because they're corporately linked. Uh Is that unusual, Yvonne? A single show being shown on two networks at once seems unusual. I think it's unusual. And I think it's just to continue the momentum. It's really hard to be seen on TV right now. Like, it's hard for anything to break out. So anything you can do to continue to boost a show's profile, I think, is worth trying. And they have the ability to do it. So why not take advantage? 
And I don't think anybody's really figured out yet, though, how to help the second season of anything yeah. rise above the fray. And there's so many excellent second seasons that have happened over the last year, really, that they're not getting the kind of attention they should for how good they are. And I think Barry's excellent. The second season's really good. Killing Eve, we're talking about it right now, but Game of Thrones is out. I mean, come on. There's no winning formula for that right now. And I think it's good for AMC. Its storytelling tends to skew toward male characters. So I think it's a good sort of program to have on their roster. Just even the way you find a show now, the way it comes to you, the way in which we watch TV is so up in the air now. It's like it's never been before. It's too much. I feel like when I'm talking to people who don't do what we do for a living, people who watch... Who are those people? The people that watch TV. I them. <laughs> the people that casually watch TV. Yes. Who think it's fun. Who think it's I fun. I um, remember when that was fun. Uh, when I'm asking them, what are you waiting for? What are you excited about? I even see the total scattered fragmentation <laughs> look of confusion in their face. And I even see now that it's filtered into the general public who watch TV for enjoyment because often they can't point to one thing. They can do Game of Thrones. Like, that's the big one, right? And now Jodie Comer was just here in our offices in El Segundo for one of our Emmy roundtables. In our offices in El Segundo, yes. And Yvonne, I think you were monitoring that that chat. Now, first of all, when you're talking to Jodie Comer in person, is she as facially expressive as she is as Villanelle? Yes, she is. And you do totally feel like Eve when you're in her presence because she'll plop down right next to you and take off her shoes and put on her slippers. And literally, that's what she did. And she'll just talk to you like normal. And it's kind of like, this is weird. Like, I barely know you, but I want to be your best friend. But I can't. I'm interviewing you. And like she'll spill stuff on herself. But it does feel like, okay, at any moment, is this all a distraction? At any moment, is she going to kill me? Or are we going to make out? (laughs) Or are we going to make out? Yes. Yeah. It's a weird thing. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the big question of the series at this point, do we actually want Eve and Villanelle to be together or not? Well, I'm sort of curious if they're going to have to band together when it comes to this new female assassin that's being introduced. Are they eventually going to meet that way? I don't know. I think that's a high possibility. I don't want to see them together romantically because I think we need the tension. Like, Where's the tension going to come from then? But if they have to band together to fight the ghost... And maybe they're banding together on parallel lines, but not quite meeting yet. So potentially that could be interesting. I mean, I don't know how they could keep the series going and have them together together. I just don't think that would uh, make sense. There are new Ross and Rachel. It's like you you want it, but you don't because you like, I don't know. Already the show has been renewed for a third season with another new showrunner, Suzanne Heathcote, who I think has been involved in Fear the Walking Dead. Mm -hmm. And like, who knows what that tone of the show (laughs) is going to be? It's going to be zombies. Yeah, I don't (laughs) know. Really well-dressed zombies. (laughs) Yes. And I think that makes for a great place to wrap this up. I, I know I am very excited to see where the second half of this second season goes. And uh, so hopefully we'll have a chance. If we don't talk about it again for this season, definitely as we get around to the next season of Killing Eve. And so, Yvonne, why don't you tell people where they can find you online? On Twitter at Via Really. Lorraine? 
on Twitter at Lorraine Ollie. We'll take a brief break and be right back with indie genre director, writer, and producer Roxanne Benjamin to talk about her new film, Body at Brighton Rock. Hi, everyone. It's me, Lucas Peterson, L.A. Times food columnist, and I think you'll be pleased to learn that the L.A. Times food section has relaunched both online and in print. We have excellent recipes, outstanding reviews, unbelievable local food news, all for you at the very affordable price of 99 cents for the first four weeks for online access and $1.99 per week after that. Find our content online every day and in print on Thursdays. Go to latimes.com slash hungryla to subscribe. I have a code zero. Three zero. You've checked all the vital facts? Yes. I lost my map on the trail. Are there any landmarks you can see? I can see Brighton Rock. You're a long ways out there. I'm just I'm like a park guy. I pick up trash and I hand out pamphlets. Wendy, you need to stay and secure the area. Is anyone else there? No, it's just me and him. There's no one else up here. You really need to leave. This is a Roxanne Benjamin used to work at Griffith Park and then inspired her new film, Body at Brighton Rock which she calls an existential survival thriller. It's available on VOD and in limited theatrical release. Croxanne, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I think you will do a much better job of this than I will. Could you describe the movie to people? How do you tell people what the movie's about? It's about a summer part-time park employee who gets a little over her head when she takes on a rather rough trail to prove to her friends and herself that she's capable of handling it and finds a dead body and then is forced to spend the night with it out in the woods until help and authorities can arrive. Hilarity ensues. You and I have spoken about the movie once before. I talked to you on the phone just before its world premiere. And as I recall, when we had that conversation, you were covered head to toe in blood. I was covered head to toe in blood and I was in the woods, which I found out later were referred to as the murder woods in between the hotel and the Walmart on the side of the highway where I was staying for Creepshow. And yeah, apparently there were like a lot of muggings in those woods. So I was just kind of sitting in front of the woods covered in blood. Please explain, how (laughs) was it that you were covered in blood? It was from shooting Creepshow. Spoilers, so nobody tell Creepshow folks that I told you this. This is just between us. I got to use something called a blood cannon. And it is somewhat exactly as it sounds. You have an air mortar under the stage that's like cut out and put underneath a body or other prosthetic type thing that you need something to explode out of. And then we exploded about two gallons of blood out of it. And it rained down from the ceiling for like a solid 30 seconds. It was the best. The reason that I bring this up is because both with that instance and then also when you're shooting Body at Brighton Rock, you had all these challenges with weather. You ended up having some health issues stemming from the movie. Do you feel like you are drawn to these projects that require this level of sort of deep commitment? I feel like any form of filmmaking requires a deep commitment. You have to love it or you're just going to have a very miserable time. I imagine it's much like being a parent. (laughs) Like there's probably points where you're just like, I want to kill this kid, but like I love him and he's mine. So there's got to be some sort of, uh, I don't know, inner something that's driving you to have this job. Otherwise you'd just break. I'm more drawn to like action, thriller, anything that's more adrenaline packed or puts you in a state of constant fight or flight. That's more the kind of content I'm drawn to. So it's what I want to explore in my own work. And then why do you think that is? What is it draws you to that? Oh, man, we're going to get into my whole psychology, aren't we? 
This is what all of my Q&As are like, too. It's like, everyone, let's just break it down. I'm sorry I put you through my neuroses that I just put on screen. I'm actually a bit of a wallflower, to be honest. And it's kind of my way of like communicating with people is through the things that I write and direct to hopefully feel that other people feel the same way, too. That's kind of the best feeling. It's not to do with reviews or people seeing the movie or like feeling like you got the right suspenseful jump scare or made people jump at the right moment with a loud noise. It's literally like people who come up and say like, I feel more normal having seen that. That's like the best feeling. Well, I know for myself, the reason I'm drawn to genre storytelling is because it's like my most extreme sort of feelings get expressed in that work and somehow it allows me to like safely kind of put them in that box and deal with them and then I feel like I don't have to like carry that stuff around with me as much in my regular self. Yeah, I think that's why people gravitate towards horror and genre and thriller fair during times of like societal and political unrest. Historically, does have something to do with that psychologically that it's allowing us to experience the release of tension and fear in a somewhat safe space. It's almost like if you add too much reality into the genre stuff that you're making, people get a little uncomfortable with it because it's reminding them of the real world and what's happening outside, and that's what they're trying to escape from. I just want to make pure escapism. I have no messages for the world. I just want some popcorn fluff. Just write that on my gravestone. One of the things that I actually like so much in Body of Brighton Rock is that the lead character, Wendy, played by Karina Fontes, everyone sort of tells her, don't do that. Don't go out on those dangerous trails. And she kind of really wants to prove to people that she can do it. And I feel as if the movie in some ways is everybody telling her, like, stay in your lane, do your thing. Uh And she wants to do more than that. And so it's like not exactly a story of self-discovery in like a conventional way, but it is about her realizing she can do more than people will give her credit for. She's very naive. I mean, she's a bit of a ditz. And she's written that way intentionally. She does every wrong thing. She does the most egregious of the wrong things that you can do in this situation. One, because none of us turns into a wilderness hero halfway through a movie like we think we would. And I think that actually makes people a little uncomfortable because they want to be the stand-in for the protagonist and see themselves in her. And they don't want to see their own flaws and their own mistakes. They want to see someone who like totally would have made it out alive. And she is probably not that. She's going to be the first one to die in a slasher movie. Or she will be the smart one who just locks herself in a closet and cries and probably falls asleep or gets on Instagram and then forgets she's in a movie. That's Wendy. And I wanted her to have a feeling of naivete more than just that she makes the wrong choices, but just that she does them out of just not really understanding how many perils are really out there. Despite what people say, she has a very rosy outlook of the world and the movie is very subjective that it takes that rosy outlook and just kind of breaks it apart she goes from being like yeah i can do this like screw you guys to as soon as she's put in a position of real authority and real responsibility and real danger she's like just kidding i would like to stop now can like we turn the ride off and it's like well no now you have to go through it so through the series of circumstances It's kind of like an anti-empowerment movie because she doesn't do anything heroic. She's just put through the ringer. Another thing about the movie is that it starts out seemingly very simple and it sort of gets more complicated as it goes along, in part because as the night wears on and she's not sure what's happening, you're not sure of like, is she imagining these things? Are these things really happening? Can you talk a little bit just structurally about 
putting a movie together in that way where it like it seems so simple and then it gets kind of more and more complicated. Something that's this kind of small of a budget, you get to have a little bit more fun experimentally. But it was like, how many challenges can you put in this? Okay, if we have one actress and we basically put her in one location and give her an action that is an anti-action, her action is to do nothing. Her action is to not run, to not leave, to not touch anything rather than an actual action and put her in this survival circumstance that doesn't really have that many survival stakes involved. How do you keep people's attention in that, which you're basically making a chamber piece with no one for her to act against except nature. And the thing that I wanted to explore with that is really just the psychological survival. It's an existential survival thriller is basically how I describe it, because Everything she's going through, she's putting herself through. And I feel like that's very true to life, that a lot of the things that we fear are just completely imaginary. Now, the inspiration for the story, you actually worked in a park? I worked in the observatory. I try not to mention it too much just because I don't want them to be like, why are you telling people this inspired your movie? It's, you know, like, don't tell people you find dead bodies in Griffith Park. They do, actually. But again, that's just between us. We have some rangers up there, but there's only two rangers for like that entire side of the park. And you think about it and how long it takes to get up there if something actually goes wrong. And people get lost on the trails all the time. And all the people that I work with there in the observatory, there's like retired teachers and professors and a lot of like students who are studying physics. We're not exactly like your crack team of wilderness experts if something like really went down. And going to the national parks a lot with my dad, we would spend like probably two weeks every year going to like different national parks and hiking around and all the people there too. It's like people just on their summer break working for the summer and they just need a job. They're not necessarily trained to do anything like EMTs or survival skills, nor are they supposed to be. There's actual rangers who that is their job and are trained and like they go to school for like this kind of thing. And I just wanted to think of like, what was the worst person you could put in this scenario? And this is a good spot to play a clip from the film, Body at Brighton Rock. Here, Wendy, played by Karina Fontes, encounters a man in the wilderness while she's guarding a body. The man is played by Casey Adams. Okay. What were you doing? You shouldn't be here. I've been coming up here for years. No, I don't mean the woods. I mean, right there. There's been an accident. Who is he? I don't know. A hiker. The police are on their way. When are they getting here? Soon. Hey! Hey! Stop. You really need to leave. This is a crime scene. Thought you said it was an accident. Maybe, maybe not. That's why you what were you thinking me. when you wrote that scene? I was just thinking of what would I do in that situation? Because you have to be, as the park official, you're still a representative and you have to wait until like a coroner or someone can arrive and say that this isn't foul play of any kind. This is just an accident. And there's a lot of accidents in the national parks. If you go look up statistics for that, it's actually really alarming. And I talked to a lot of actual rangers in the parks with my DP. We went around to a, a couple different parks when we were looking for somewhere to shoot and up in the national forests. And they're like, oh, yeah, it happens all the time. One of them even was like, oh, this just happened to like Mary like two weeks ago. But then how do you build that idea out into this sort of existential psychological thriller? I feel like there's a very formulaic way you could take that premise that would lean more into like kind of a classic De Palma thriller, which, I mean, I love those, but 
it just felt very much like if I took it that way, the genre audience, which is the most savvy audience there is, in my opinion, in the first 20 minutes to be like, I know where this is going. Nope, it's not going to be that guy. It's going to be another guy. And we're going to find out later. And it's we're going to find out at this point. And they just know what the plot structure is for that kind of movie. And so I wanted to try and make something that was a little more fun and campy overall and feel like summer camp and then things go awry because it's very subjectively from Wendy's like world, you know, and where she sees things is like bright and fun and she's the star of the story and then things just go horribly awry and turn into this awful experience. Your background as a producer and a filmmaker is in working in maybe a more straightforward horror vein. And I'm so interested in what you were saying about genre audiences and the fact that you feel like they're so savvy, you know that they're kind of going to be predicting and beyond what you're doing. At what point in the process are you thinking about those people? Is it even when you're writing, are you thinking, oh, people are going to catch on to this? Oh, yeah. Yep. 100%. Usually once I'm done with a script, I'll have a couple like trusted writer friends and director friends read it. But also one or two friends who are just horror or genre fans to see where they got it. Because the thing is, they're always looking for it. The people who see all these genre movies, they know what all the tropes are. They know what to expect. And they're always looking for it. They're looking for the red herring. They're looking for the misdirect. They're trying to call it ahead of time. So it's almost trying to stay one step ahead of them and keeping it interesting so that it doesn't feel like something you've seen before. And so that can go in different directions. And hopefully that keeps you a little more tense because you don't quite know what to expect or which of these threads is actually going to pan out. When you're working on something like Body of Brighton Rock, are you looking at movies? Like, did you have like a set of reference films that you were working from when you were making the movie? There's certain style things that I look up to, like Giallo style stuff that is campy and cheesy to most people, but I never went to film school, so I didn't know it was as hacky as it was. I just saw them and was like, this is awesome. I love this. I want to do that in all my movies. You know, but like they were very good at making something feel very theatrical and super realism on top of whatever story they were telling. And that I always liked because I come from more of a theater background. And I also was looking at like Let's Scare Jessica to Death and Ballerina Her Week of Wonders and Caddyshack. So if you throw all those in a blender, you kind of get where my sense of style or tone comes from. And I want to be sure that we talk about just the production of the movie, because you get so much production value out of the setting of the movie being in this national park. And on the one hand, I assume that's like trees don't cost you anything. But on the (laughs) other hand, what kind of challenges did that present? I mean, I know there was a lot of weather that you Uh had to deal with as you were making the movie. I must be like the worst producer in the world because I'm like, I need to make a lower budget movie. Because what happened was like I had a larger movie that was going to be my first feature that the financing fell through. That was about 2.2 million. So decent budget for like a a first feature. And that fell through at the last minute. And I wrote this movie kind of thinking budgetarily like, okay, most of it takes place during the daytime. You have one actor, mostly in one location. And then... Of course, it never really turns out that way because once you get into it, it's like, ah, well, the promise of the premise is a night in the woods. So um, I should really add more of these into the night side of things. And I really need to show more of her just kind of like getting out there and really getting off track. So I might want to add a little more in there as well. And I don't want it to just feel like a slow burn. So I don't want her just like wandering around and nothing happening. So why don't I throw this into before you know it? It's like, wait, this is the like indie low budget version of a movie to make you know (laughs) and in this it's you get so much more production value to me just being out in the woods and out in 
nature, and especially in California, where we have so many natural landmarks here that we can use for movies, and I don't know why we don't. Well, actually, I do. Because when you have your entire movie set outside, there is no cover set when the entire wilderness is where you're shooting. We had 11 days to shoot, and a day and a half of that I lost to windstorms. There was a category purple windstorm, which was created to describe the windstorm that we were in with 60 to 70 mile per hour winds, trees coming down. The actual firemen had to come up and get our heaters down off the side of the mountain and our generator for us. But there was no power in the town for two days. They shut the power off in case power lines go down. You know, it could start another huge wildfire. So they just shut it off preemptively. So we had to figure out what to shoot. And one day was just like a snow day, basically, like everyone just like ran around in Idlewild with everything closed and tried to convince, I think, one of the bars to open so that they could go hang out there. There's this sort of very like macho, old school Fitzcarraldo idea of making a movie where like, whatever happens, we're going to make this movie. And then there's also the very practical concerns of worrying about people's safety and your, mm-hmm. your crew, yourself. Is there some like tension in yourself between like how to deal with a situation like that? You hear people say, like, I would never ask someone to do something that I wouldn't do myself. But it's like what you would do yourself is not necessarily what somebody else is comfortable with doing. So there was a point actually where, you know, we asked the crew, like, does anyone feel unsafe going up to get these last couple shots? And a couple people were like, yeah, I don't want to go up there. And we were like, "Okay, cool. We're going to go grab it and we'll be back. Like, we'll see you guys in a bit. Save us some coffee. So we always gave people that option. If there were winds, and since we had like the firefighters with us, they were the ones to say whether or not we could go up and grab anything in the woods still. There's no real like fight for me between directing and producing because like it's all one thing for me between like the logistical and the creative. It all kind of feeds into each other. And the reason that it was only 11 day shoot to begin with is because I wasn't going to pay anybody less than a certain amount because these people are here to work to pay their rent. Yeah, we're all here for art, but like we're also adults. This isn't film school. Nobody should be having to come to work, getting underpaid and put in a position like this. And that's something that you sometimes see in indie filmmaking at this low of a budget. There's nothing that pisses me off more, especially when it is a studio who could be paying people correctly and they don't. And then they brag about it, about how low their budgets are for their genre stuff. Given all that, you, in fact, got hurt making the movie. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) You know, when you're talking to some people and they're like, man, Wendy does some of the dumbest things. And I'm like, I've done all of them except find a body. But this is in the middle of winter. It's freezing cold. We're going up and down. Like we're hiking all day long, all night long and like up on the rocks. And I just I blew a disc out in my back just from like carrying too much stuff up and down the hill. You know, I was once more into the breach and then down I go and ended up having to have back surgery. So I spent a lot of our editorial sitting with like a back brace and a cane and a lot of muscle relaxers and a lot of Tylenol. (laughs) You're okay now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently you have to have abs to support your back. That's a thing. So now I just have to, yeah, I have to like go to physical therapy like twice a week still. And now another one of the astonishing things about the movie is there's a sequence, and I don't think this is a spoiler, that involves a live bear. And can you just tell me a little bit about working with the bear? I mean, that just seems really impressive to me. The bear was the easiest part of the shoot. But what ties into that is you have to be so overprepared and know exactly 
what you're going to get ahead of time. We had to do there were storyboards that we were checking off on the day. You know, we had been talking to the trainers for like two or three months. We had given them very specific actions we wanted the bear to do. They look over all the animatics and are like, okay, he can do that. He can't do that. We can train him to do that. If he does that in that shot, he's going to be looking at us and not at her and your bear's eye lines are going to be off. And it's funny because it's like, oh, animals, man, you don't want to work with animals. Super unpredictable. And he was like so on point. It was legitimately like one of the smoothest days of the entire shoot. The bigger problem with shooting the bear was honestly, he's so freaking cute. We had to add scary eyebrows and give him a snarl and make his teeth bigger and like make his claws look more menacing and darken up his eyes because he looks like a giant puppy running at you. And he's just like, hey guys, what are we doing? There's some behind the scenes stuff that we made for the DVD little featurette with him. And it's just like, you just want him and Karina to go off and have adventures and that to be the end of the movie. Like she just leaves civilization and like rides off on the bear into the sunset because he's so cute and he eats white chocolate Oreos. They're his favorite. Body Bright and Rock is your feature debut as a writer and director and your background up to now, you directed a few sort of parts of anthology films, some short films, and worked really extensively as a producer. Is that a difficult transition to make for you to go from being a producer in the genre space to being someone who's become a full-fledged writer-director in the genre space? It felt like a pretty natural transition. I think the bigger thing for me was just I never went to film school, and I always thought that there was this kind of technical barrier that I would not be able to cross. Making all these anthologies, I got to work with some of my favorite genre filmmakers that are working today. And so they were my film school. Jason Eisner and Ty West and Eduardo Sanchez and Greg Hale and the Radio Silence guys, David Bruckner, like all of them. Like I was learning, kind of watching them on set of like what directing actually was and getting to see a lot of different directing styles, honestly, throughout four years or so of making those movies. That's the only thing I would feel like feels like more of a gender divide to me when anyone brings up gender and I'm like, oh, yeah, what's the difference? You know, that would be the only thing that I, in my own experience, talking to my male director friends and my female director friends is that my female director friends had a much more similar experience to me where like they waited until they felt like they had a fully rounded idea of what every aspect of directing was before they jumped in. And all my guy friends were like, nah, man, I just jumped right in the deep end. It's really interesting to think about that. And now, as you mentioned earlier, you also have Body at Brighton Rock coming out now, but you also have just worked on Creep Show, an episode of the sort of anthology series that's going to be coming out. I'm leading up to asking you the obligatory question of like, would you want to direct a Marvel movie? Like if oh, someone yeah. handed you a oh, big budget totally. film, would you want that? I want to make like John Wick movies. I want the team coming together and like overcoming impossible odds with the comedic timing thrown in. Like that's like the stuff that I love. I want to blow it up. And so the new movie is Body at Brighton Rock. Roxanne Benjamin, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's for LA Times Studios and The Real. I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. This week's show was produced by Katie Cooper and edited by Mike Heflin. <laughs>